Money is like the naked human body. How so? How is money like the naked human body? Well, if you talk to any free market capitalist, they'll tell you that money is a neutral object. It's a tool that can be used for good or ill. Now, as a middle-class American congregation, I imagine most of us would agree and say, yeah, money's a neutral object. It's a tool. It can be used for good or ill. Would you say the same thing about the naked human body? If you thought about it, you'd probably say, well, uh, yeah, but... No, like from a purely philosophical perspective, the naked human body is neutral. It's a tool that can be used for good or ill, can be used in a lot of different ways. But none of us would say that without qualification. Why not? Because there's something askew in human nature. The problem's not with the body. The problem's not with the the nakedness. God made us naked. The problem's how we respond to it what we do with it. The problem is our hearts. And I want to argue that money is like that. In theory and in principle, I'm very comfortable with the notion economically that money is a neutral object, a tool that can be used for good or evil, just like the naked human body. The problem is not with the money or the body or the nakedness. The problem is us. The problem is our disposition, our affections, our hearts. And Jesus, in our text today, addresses that deeper problem of our hearts, our internal uh, disposition, especially in relation to money. Let's look at the text again we read earlier, 19 to 23. Thank you, Jonathan. Oh, he's teaching the kids, but uh, thank you, Jonathan, for extending that. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So we get two different paragraphs here, two different teachings of Jesus. One about this treasure stuff, one about this eye stuff. But in these two teachings, I think Jesus makes three powerful points about money. Here they are. First... Every time we spend the resources at our disposal, we are intentionally or unintentionally choosing to value one thing over another. That's the first point. I'm going to show you here in a second where this comes from. Second, as a result, you can learn what you love by looking at your finances. And these external expressions of desire and affection, what we do with our treasure, it reveals our internal spiritual state. So these are the three things I think we can get out of these two teachings of Jesus, but I'm going to show you how. First, we get this first paragraph, verses 19 through 21, and Jesus gives some investment advice. He says, you have resources at your disposal. He calls it treasure. What treasure do you have? We all have time. We have energy in varying amounts. We have our homes. We have our lives. We also have our finances. And most directly, Jesus is addressing finance in this text. But every one of us all has different treasures in varying quantities. And every time we spend any of our resources on something, we're making a choice. We're choosing to invest in one thing rather than in another. You've heard it said before. You say yes to one thing. What are you doing? 
You're saying no to absolutely everything else. Jesus is making that point. You have treasure. You can invest your treasure in a lot of different things, but specifically in two different categories of things. Look back at 19 and 20. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. So Jesus says, you can invest the treasures that you have in things that depreciate. Things that waste away, rot, rust, can be stolen. Or you can invest in a commodity that not only never depreciates, but will last forever. Well, if Warren Buffett gave me that advice, I'd say he was nuts. He'd lost his mind. That's impossible. There is no commodity that doesn't depreciate. Of course, Jesus is talking about the difference between spending your treasure on earthly things or heavenly things, temporal things or eternal things. Well, what's eternal? What lasts forever? There's only one thing that's eternal, and it's God. His glory and the things he establishes. God is the one eternal being. He is the only one, and yet he does grant to his people eternal life. So to invest our treasure in heavenly realities means to invest our resources. Again, he's mostly talking about money here, but you can think about your life, your time, your home, your energy, all that. We invest our treasure in heavenly realities. That means to invest our resources in ways that magnify the glory and love of God among people. Investing our resources in things that spread the glory of God and spread the love of God among people. But as Jesus closes this paragraph, he makes a stunning teaching that feels like a dagger to my heart every time I read it. And I imagine it'll feel the same way to you. Verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart is will be also. What does that mean? Jesus is saying, we can look at the things we invest in, we can look at the things that we buy, we can look at the things that we save for, we can look at our financial portfolio, and when we do, and this includes the church budget for the record, not just your budget, but the church budget too, you look at the budget and it tells you what you love. Where your treasure is, there you find your heart. So every time I look at my checkbook, my budget, my investments, when I look at those things, I see a numerical expression of my love. And what Jesus is asking is, what do you love more? What do you love the most? Your pleasure, your comfort, your position, your prestige, your family? Or my glory and the spread of my love and glory among people? You'd think Jesus would let off the nerve a little bit. And for modern readers, you think he does when you read the next paragraph. But he doesn't. He doubles down. He goes on he teaches something that sounds strange to modern ears. And here's why. We understand eyeballs to be receptive organs, right? Kids, how do, how do, how do, Mike, you know how the eyeball works? Teach the congregation. How's the eyeball work? That's right, yeah, so your pupils dilate, the light comes in, and it communicates something to your brain. Mike, you're 13, right? A 13-year-old in 2023 
understands the eyeball. I think fairly well. Maybe we're wrong about how the eyeball works too. Ancients did not understand the eyeball that way. Here's how they understood the eyeball. You ever been in a dark room? Like you've been outside and you walk or you, you go into a movie theater, or you go into your bedroom, you turn off the lights. What happens after four? June, you could tell me what happens after four or five minutes in the dark? You get used to it. And you can see, can't you? The ancients understood that in this way. This is how they interpreted it. They believed that the eye actually gave off a faint light. That's why you could see. It cast off light. That's why Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body. It shines with light. Now, you might say, well, Jesus, why are you telling him wrong stuff? Jesus knows how the eye worked. He made the eye. But he's dealing with people that don't understand it. He's not interested in a biology lesson, so he takes their understanding of the eyeball and he utilizes it for his purposes. And what does he say? Look at verse 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What's he saying? He says... If your eye shines with light, if your eye is good, that's because there's light in you. The light is coming out. But if your eye is bad, what's in you? Not light, darkness. What in the world is he saying? This is hard for a 21st century reader. Jesus is talking about the things we look at, the things we desire, the things we long for, the things we covet after and lust for. If we are putting our eyes on good things, on eternal things, on God things, that's because there's light in us. But if our eyes are on the wrong things, constantly on the temporal things, worthless things, that's because there is a great darkness in us. What that means is the things we choose to look at, to long for, to lust after, to buy, our eyes demonstrate something about our inner self. So you want to know your heart? Look at your longings, what you're longing for. You want to know your heart? Look at your checkbook, what you buy things, what what you're investing in. This is the point Jesus is making. When you take these two paragraphs together, he says this, the things we long for, pursue, including how we spend our money on these desires, it's all driven by one thing, the heart. The inner disposition, our inward state steers our desires and our spending. And when we look at our desires, our spending, our saving, investing, it exposes our inner state. Now, what in the world does that have to do with the sermon series I've been preaching about promoting the gospel in St. Tammany Parish? Here it is. A key element of promoting the gospel with actions rather than words is to generously provide for the needs of gospel workers, gospel ministry, and the needy. Now, based upon what I've already said this morning, based upon what I've said in this sermon series, I imagine you're able to connect the dots here. We've talked at length about the vast number of people in St. Tammany Parish that don't have repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. And while we do need to tell them the gospel, every one of us has a part to play in that, there are other actions we can take that will get the gospel to them, that will promote the gospel among them. Well, like what? really simple. When we provide for gospel workers and gospel ministry, that frees up men and women to do the work of the gospel full-time. It's very simple. Also, when we supply the needs of the poor, the widow, and the orphan, and the suffering, 
They experience the love of God. When you're hungry and I give you food in the name of Jesus, God is loving them. And that makes much of the name of Jesus. Now, this is likely the part of the sermon where you expect me to say, well, give 10% to Faith Presbyterian Church and we could call it a day. It'd be a very easy sermon to preach, very easy to communicate. But I'd have a hard time arguing for that in good conscience. Why? The New Testament does not clearly teach an ethic that every Christian should give 10% of their income to the local church. I know you've heard it in sermons before. Maybe you were raised being taught that. I don't see it. So where did this whole 10% thing come from? Well, the idea of a 10% tithe comes from several Old Testament narratives and Old Testament laws that were applied to the people of Israel. And if you're a Bible person, you know that just because God told Israel to do something, that doesn't get ported over one for one to the church every time. The relationship between the commands given to Israel and the commands given to the church post-Pentecost are often different, sometimes radically so, right? But do those laws still have relevance for us today? Most certainly. There's much to be learned there. Here's a great example. In the Old Testament, among Israel, when children were born into the covenant community, there was a sign and seal applied. But it was circumcision and of course, only to boys. That's not the same now. Now, when children are born born into the covenant community, it's not just boys anymore. Boys and girls are baptized. It's actually better. It's different. It signifies and seals a lot of the same things as circumcision, but there is some difference. I and your session believe that the tithing laws of the Old Testament fall into the same category. There is relevance But there's also significant difference. Back in 2014, a long time ago, it feels a long time ago, our session had a special meeting to discern our view of what we believe the scriptures taught about tithing. And we actually have those minutes printed for you and available today if you'd like to see at length our official position on this. This isn't something we just kept publishing. We gave it to the congregation then. It's just been on our records. If you'd like to see that, you can look at it. But I want to um, express some of the ideas in it, I'll try to hit some of the high points. While there are differences between what we believe the Old Testament and the New Testament teach on financial generosity, there are some things that are the same. So here are the ethics that we think are the same. First, gospel workers, it's pastors, evangelists, missionaries, etc., like Old Testament priests, should receive an adequate, if not generous, living from the people that they serve. I gave you a couple texts you could look at there on your own time. It's a pretty simple ethic. Gospel workers in an ideal setting shouldn't have to fret about whether they can feed themselves and their families. Instead, their needs should be taken care of so that they can serve. Now, did the Apostle Paul always take a paycheck from the churches he served? No. There were some churches that he didn't feel like it was right. And so he took a side hustle. He made tents so that he could do that. So this isn't a law that it has to be this way all the time. But this is kind of the, the broad brush ideal that we see throughout the Bible. Here's another way that the New Testament and Old Testament are the same. The people of Yahweh should generously care for the needs of God's people, especially the poor, the widow, and the orphan. I don't think it's going to surprise any of you guys. 
Read the Psalms, read Ruth, read 2 Corinthians, and you will see regularly that not only does God care for the forgotten, marginalized, and overlooked, he also calls his people, the people of God, to demonstrate his care to those folks, especially when they're members of the household of God. If there are people in the church who have financial needs, we are commanded to care for them. So yeah, we're supposed to care for the gospel workers in our midst, but we're also to care for those who are needy in our congregation. Now, here's another one. By implication, it seems that Christians may also give with discerning freedom to the needs of those outside the body of Christ. The previous two, I feel very comfortable giving you an imperative. You should care for the gospel workers in your midst. You should care for the people in your church that are needy. It's not a hard stretch biblically to say we should also give to those outside the church. People who have needs should be cared for. When you look at the Old Testament hospitality laws that we saw a few weeks ago, when you look at Acts 2 and the ministry of Jesus, it seems to me that the early church was very free in giving to the needs of the people around them. But there's a hierarchy of responsibility. Our responsibility is first to feed our family, right? Our church. We care for our pastor. We care for those who serve us. We care for the needy in our community. We care for other Christians in our community. And then we go outside. So those are some big picture ethics where I think the Old and New Testament are in agreement. But here are some ways where I think the New Testament is different uh, from the Old Testament. Um, How the, The rules for the church are kind of different than they were for Israel. Christian generosity is a private, voluntary activity to be done in good conscience before the Lord with consistency that can't be imposed from outside. It's between you and the Lord. I don't know what anybody at FPC gives. I think we have two people that see those checks when they come through. And it's not me and it's not anybody in leadership because this is between you and the Lord. Acts chapter 5 has a fascinating story. I remember as a kid, I love this one just because it's wild. Uh, a, a story from the early... Go ahead and turn, turn there. We're going to read it. Acts 5. Uh, so there's a couple in the early church named Ananias and Sapphira that sell some property. They sold it, and they told the apostles, we're going to give the proceeds of this property to the church. But they lied. They did not intend to give all the proceeds to the church. What happened when they lied about it? Look at chapter 5, Acts, verses 1 through 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Listen to this verse, verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it then that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Peter says, dude, you didn't have to give us any of that money. That was your property. You could have done whatever you wanted with it, but instead... You chose to lie about it. Why not just be honest about what you wanted to give? And God struck the man dead. Why? Because your financial generosity to care for gospel workers, to care for the needy, 
is a private matter between you and God. And what is it about? It's about your heart. It's about what you love. Your love for him, your excitement to partner with him and with what he's doing in the world, whether you're excited about reaching the lost, making disciples, caring for the needs of the church and the world. So here's what I can't do as a pastor. I can't tell you that you have to give X amount or X percent. That's for you to choose in a conversation with God, to commit to before God. Now, the imperative I can give you is that you should give generously to the work of God in the world, that you should make a commitment and give with consistency as your conscience guides you in agreement with the scriptures. Now, you might think, this is the most, I've never preached a sermon on tithing before, for the record. This is my first time in 15 years as a pastor and longer for preaching. So you might think this is the craziest, most libertine sermon on giving that you've ever heard. So you can give whatever you want. You can give as little as you want. Yes. That is exactly my point. But also no. The law of freedom that we find in the New Testament about giving should be described as radical sacrificial generosity. You no doubt remember the Old Testament law about adultery. It's in one of the Ten Commandments. Y'all remember what it was? I may need to preach on sex next week. Don't do it. That's the command. Don't commit adultery. We're talking about bodies again, right? The Old Testament law says don't commit adultery. And in Matthew 5, Jesus takes the command a step further. And he says this. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. What's Jesus doing in this radical teaching? He's not throwing out the old law. He's saying, you know what? It was only the Jews that didn't have to commit adultery. You guys have a heyday. Just don't do anything with your eyes. No, he's not throwing out the law. He's going deeper than the law itself. Jesus wants to get past the behavior to the heart. Jesus aims to do heart surgery. Why? Because you can be faithful to your spouse with your body and just live in wild in your mind and with your eyes. And if that's you, he calls you to repent. It is still unfaithfulness. Jesus doesn't want outward obedience. He wants our hearts. And the same thing applies to giving. God isn't saying, okay, New Testament Christians, you don't have to tithe anymore. That was what the Jews did. No. He's saying the Old Testament was just the beginning. I don't want 10% of your income. I want everything. I want your heart. I want your affections. I want your desires. And in line with that, Romans 12 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, here we are again, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is not what we do on Sunday morning. Now, we are worshiping. This is worship. But this is not the whole of worship. What does Paul say here? All of life is worship. Everything you do with your body is worship. When we go forth from here, everything we do is to be to the glory of God. That's everything. 
So God doesn't call for us to give 10% of our income to the gospel and to the needs around us. He calls us to give sacrificially. He calls us to give until it hurts. He calls us to give our whole lives. Now, some of you grew up with, like I did, being told, give 10%. And you're like, well, what am I supposed to do now? <laughs> I do encourage you to give sacrificially. If you've never given to the work of the gospel before, I encourage you to start with 10%. Because I think 10% is sacrificial. I think 10% is hard. If you've never given to the work of God before, I can promise you 10% is going to be a real pinch. Maybe, though, it'll be easy for you. So give more. You give 10% and it's breaking you. Maybe you're on a fixed income. Listen, maybe we should be giving to you. Maybe we should be caring for you if that's where you are, but you can draw back. You don't have to give 10%. You give less than that. It's between you and God to discern that and to work through that. But to whom? Does it all go to FPC? Or, you know, you give a certain amount to to FPC and then you can give more to, to other ministries? The law of freedom we find in the New Testament teaches us to be responsive to the specific needs around us. What are the needs you see? Do you have gospel workers, gospel ministry, and needy people, especially Christians, whom you love and have committed yourselves to? Then give to them. That's the rule. That's it. So who are the gospel workers you've committed to support? If you're a member of our church, you have committed to participate in the life of this church. So that means you do have some commitment to care for the needs of your pastor, the staff, and also the ministry that we do together and the needs that are here. Also, we support missionaries. So if you're a member, there is some commitment there. So pray about it. Think about it. Talk to your spouse about it. You, you might have to do a budget. That's a whole other conversation. But make a decision and give generously and consistently according to your conscience. But your gifts to our church don't just pay me and Chris. If you give more, it's not we're, we're not giving raises all around. The more that people give, the more that we're able to do other ministries, new ministries that we have only begun to think about and dream about. That said, I recognize there are other ministries besides FPC, even in St. Tammany Parish, that are good and God-honoring, and frankly, I give to some of them. I give to FPC, but there are other ministries I give to as well. Would it be an easier, clearer sermon for me to say, just give 10% to FPC and call it a day? Sure. That's not what God wants. He wants more than that. He wants your heart. He wants your intentionality. He wants you to treasure the things that he treasures and to give accordingly. To give with a conviction wrought by the Holy Spirit, not because some preacher twisted your arm. He wants you to worship with everything that you are. If we give as Christ intends, the global church will have more than enough to do the work of the gospel. We'll have more than enough to care for gospel workers so they don't starve to death here and in the uttermost parts of the earth. If we give as Christ intends, the needs of the poor, the widow, and the orphan in our church and throughout St. Tammany will be largely dealt with. The gospel will be promoted quite clearly to them. And if you're giving generously to these needs, it will be a sacrifice. You may not be able to do all the things you do right now. You may not be able to have all the things your neighbors have. And that makes sense because we're different. We're of a different kingdom altogether. So I'm preparing myself for the email from the finance committee. (laughs) 
that I didn't go hard and give you a new law, that I didn't twist your arm and tell you what you have to give. Listen, if you don't believe in what we're doing at FPC, if you don't believe in my ministry, don't give. That's the worst thing you could do. To give money to a ministry that is not spreading the glory of God and the gospel, that's foolishness. Don't do that. Also, don't bail. Call me to account. Call our session to account. But if you do believe we're doing the work of God, I want to be clear that you should be giving generously according to your conscience as the Spirit and the Scriptures direct you. We have to be intentional. We have to be decisive and purposeful in how we give so that gospel workers are able to do their job well and so that the needs around us are met through the love of Christ. And as we do that together, as we all play our part, the gospel will be promoted very practically among the people and the places that we love. Let's pray. Father, we want the glory of God to spread through us. We want the gospel to spread. We want needs to be met. And so we pray that you would move your people uh, to give as you would have them to give, not as anyone else would. Give them intentionality, love, understanding, and insight to know your will. And we trust you with the results because we know your highest goal is your glory spreading across the world. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.